engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you, lads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of The Good Drop with Hawks and AD, a water industry flavoured podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Demanti, and with me again in the Good Drop studio booth is my partner in crime and my best mate, Mr. Simon Hawks. Greetings, Simon, and how are you going today, old chap? Very well, thank you, AD. Nice to be here. Looking forward to another great episode. Yes, I'm looking for today's episode as well. So, we're going to shine a light on a humble man that has worked in the water industry in a variety of roles. And that person is Mark Trembath, who is currently a corporate partnerships manager for WaterAid Australia. And for those who don't know much about WaterAid, well, WaterAid is an international not-for-profit, non-government organisation who provides water, sanitation and hygiene to the world's most impoverished and marginalised communities. I've known Mark for almost 20 years and wow, that that time has just flown. And I have to say that one of Mark's greatest strengths that I've observed during this time is his knowledge, his connections and his experience. And, and all that's been obtained through his experience or his exposure to a wide variety of industries. And I've noticed that that definitely enables Mark to provide excellent customer solutions. And it's definitely no surprise to me that he has had a wonderful career, particularly in business development and sales. In addition to his working career, he's also been heavily involved in several industry associations, such as the Australian Water Association, where he is a former Queensland committee member and former New South Wales branch president. He has also been active with the Queensland Water Directorate, Water Industry Operators Association, Water New Zealand, and many, many more. Welcome to the Good Drop podcast, Mark. Thanks, Anthony, for that uh, long introduction. You've done my job now. I can go now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get started. So to start with, tell us who is Mark Trembath and um, maybe just some background about uh, where you grew up and some of your fondest early childhood memories, perhaps. Okay, I think I had a pretty normal upbringing in the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, I look back and had a pretty normal, you know, uh, family, mum, dad, two sisters, one older, one younger did the Catholic education system and, um, you know, there were no internet or video games or when I grew up. So I think, you know, come Saturday or Sunday, you know, my parents wouldn't see me. You know, I was gone from, from 7 o'clock till 7, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. out and push bikes and BMXs and doing <laughs> what kids do. Where are you from, Mark, by the way? I grew up in uh, in Melbourne, predominantly in a um, southeastern suburb called Springbuck which is anyone in Victoria or Melbourne, it's a very well-known place. Nice. Not so familiar with the Victorian climate and and, uh, geography. I'm I'm probably struggling outside of Melbourne and a few of the other regional centres, but, uh, yeah, it's a lovely spot. It is. Not lovely enough, though. Uh, That's why I now live in Queensland. And uh, actual fact, the, the summer that we've just been through you know, I've been in Queensland for 20 years and it would be, I have to say, it's been the most hottest and humid summer since I've been here in 20 years. And I probably liken a Brisbane summer to a Melbourne winter. It can be quite unpleasant. <laughs> I've noticed that too. I holidayed over Christmas in a in a particularly um, humid kind of place in Southeast Asia. And yeah, on, on arriving back in Brisbane, I found it even more uncomfortable. So yeah, it's definitely been an uncomfortable summer in, in Queensland. You started your career as a plumber and gas fitter. So what attracted you firstly to that role, like in terms of your schooling? And we're interested to hear how that part of your life has shaped who you are. Yeah, I suppose it's um, from that and how I ended up in the water sector are quite interesting. I struggled at school. I enjoyed school, but I enjoyed being with my friends and mates. Um, you know, at the time, you know, I had uh, undiagnosed ADD or ADHD, you know, full of energy, you know, found really struggled to concentrate and um, 
and I, I enjoyed prior to school but struggled. So I was never a – wasn't a bad kid, but uh, just sort of struggled with the whole school thing. And um, I thought, what am I going to do to make my use use of my time and energy? And as, as a young kid, I loved cars like most. And I thought, well, that would be a good thing to get into and, you know, maybe be a mechanic or something like that. And uh, I sort of listened to some guys who are a lot older. Um, they're probably in their 30s, you know, at the time, but they were very old at the time when I was a kid. And, and they said, don't. And, and this is um, – and, and, you know, there are a lot of people gone on mechanical careers that had great lives and – Whatever, but I was warned not to saying this is this is not the job that we liked or thought of when we were kids and um it's the conditions are tough and so I got listening to that and thought, Oh, I need to make a decision and I need to do something and, and um getting a qualification. So I was smart enough to realise I need a qualification, even uh, smarter to know that I need something to pay some decent money and um got talking to some people and got to learn about plumbing. I thought, well, I don't mind uh, doing things with my hands and it sounds interesting going from different uh, sites and and so on. So, uh, yeah, started a, uh, a plumbing apprenticeship and away I go. But I suppose it was really uh, about having a plan and doing something, having a qualification and something that, um, you know, I can lean on for the rest of my life. Interesting. So if I, if I was to ask you during school and you were thinking about, you know, what you wanted to do, what was on your hit list besides plumbing? Something involved a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Retired by 25. I, can, I, uh, I, I just remember at uh, school just dreaming of the James Bond life. Nice. <laughs> nice clothes, nice locations, nice cars and and all the trappings that come with that. So uh, I always thought of myself of trying to get to the higher life. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right, my question, my turn. To me, you've always been such a people person, and I suppose it shouldn't surprise me, but an interesting fact about you that you provided to us in preparation for this interview with you is that you were an elected councillor for the city of Springvale. I have so many questions on this, but can you tell us briefly about this moment of your life? I'm not sure how long you're in that role, and what did it teach you? Well, I I could have been there for a long time, but... um... The state premier at the time of Victoria, Jeff Kennett, cut us all short and sacked all the elected councils in Victoria to do a consolidation like what happened in Queensland 15 odd years ago. It happened in Victoria and I think it was 93, 94. But how, how that all came about is that my parents were heavily involved in our community, community leaders. They were, my parents were both mayors of the city oh, wow. that we lived in, the city of Springvale, which at the time was a large municipality in in Melbourne, I think it had about 90,000 people. And Melbourne, you know, I think at the day would have had like 25 councils, not like Brisbane where it's all, like Brisbane used to be split up with multiple council merged in the city of, um, city of uh, or Brisbane City Council in Melbourne was a multiple different metropolitan councils. So my parents were heavily involved. They were community leaders. And um, as a young kid, you know, I was going to events with community association, the Springvale, for those that know, it was a, a, a heavily um, uh, significant multicultural hub in uh, in Melbourne. You know, when I grew up, there was you know I went to school a lot of Greeks, Maltese, Yugoslavs, or the old Yugoslavia and Italians and so on. And then uh, it all changed in the eighties. You know, it was a Cambodian and Vietnamese people settling into the Enterprise Hostel in Springvale. So, so to me, I had a big cultural upbringing with all these mix of European and Southeast Asian cultures and and as a kid being dragged along to all these events I always enjoyed them and you know, I got exposed to things that uh, most other kids would never you know pomp and ceremony of the governor general coming the premier coming wow. even even yeah. Prince Charles and my dad when he was mayor he welcomed Prince Charles so you know again Driven around in the governor general's Rolls Royce and all these things when I was a when I was a kid so that was interesting and it was um, something that uh, most kids don't get exposed to at a young age and, and I did and I enjoyed it and um, come time when I think it was about 23 years old I thought I'd have a crack at um, running for council and um, with me being an all or nothing kind of person I gave it everything I had and um, I went up against a guy that had been in council for 20 years who was mayor multiple times and everyone thought oh this you know, I've got good on your mark having a go but I think I door knocked about 10,000 houses and I think there's 12,000 um, constituents in the ward and, and there was about eight or nine candidates 
running and um, it didn't even go to preferences. I, I won completely outright. Wow. That was amazing. <laughs> Jeez, what an incredible story that is. Was the uh, ex-mayor or the... the yeah, the 20 yeah, he year... was the incumbent. And, wow. Um, it didn't help him because when they did the, the balance of the draw, there was eight or nine candidates and I drew first. So um, <laughs> I, got, I, got the, I got the donkey vote as well. Um, but it was just the energy that I had that I, I you know, for about six weeks, you know, I door knocked about 10,000 houses and um, and uh, nobody thought I had a chance in hell. And um, just through my determination, I was able to, uh, yeah, didn't even go to preferences. I won, got uh, over 50% of the first vote. That's an amazing story. Uh, I've got more questions for you, but tell me, there mustn't be too many families who have a mum and a dad who have both been mayor, surely. That's got to be a rarity. Uh I think if you go to uh, regional or a lot of regional, I think you probably might find that um, a lot of family members have been involved. Yeah, I suppose they've never really given it much thought, Simon. So this probably is unusual. Parents that both think my dad was mayor in 79, 80. My mum was mayor, I think, in 89, 90. Wow. So so what was the motivation for her to run for mayor? Oh, once again, she'd, uh, she'd always been involved, you know, through my father and she's always been involved in community groups and associations and sporting clubs and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, political background, you know, my mother was, um, I think at the time she was um, working for the Minister of Transport as well. So she was heavily sort of involved in Victorian state politics as well. So interesting. And this was at 23. And how long were you in this role for? <laughs> Not long. I think it was only 18 months, two years. And then uh, uh, the state government um, uh, reformed local government Victoria. And and there went my political career. So uh, and that brought me to another decision. You know, do I, because a lot of people expected me to, you know, the new councils weren't, I think it was about two year hiatus until they did the reform, until they had new elections. And um, I think a lot of people expected me to run it. And I think I was going to run again and probably, you know, go on to state or federal politics. And, you know, I just bought a home and and just had my first daughter with my wife. So I had to make a decision, you know. Uh, and I started uh, in my business development or sales career and was doing very well. So I had to make a decision. And, you know, definitely with money coming in, you know, uh, uh, with a career at hand or politics. And so I chose one way and... And that was it. What the defining uh, point in my life about a political future or in uh, the private or business world. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from this, is final question about your political career. But I'm keen to know what did it teach you. I'm sure you learnt a lot. Is there some snippets of wisdom that you obtained during this time? Well, they keep learning these things, uh, uh, Anthony. You know, snippets of wisdom, you know, uh, even today, he's still still learning. Uh, what did I learn? You know, being humble, definitely empathy, you know, which is something that um, you know, I really haven't fully developed probably only until a short time ago in my life, you know, really having, you know, true empathy, consequences, you know, understanding what other people are going through. And uh, I get quite irate when I see people online, you know, shouting at the rooftops about things being unfair. And there was one that just came up the other day that we would all relate to in Bray Park where those floods went through, you know, uh, two or three weeks ago, whenever it was um, at the back of Strathpine. And uh, I saw someone putting, you know, people with no house insurance getting $50,000 grants and blah, 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 blah. And, And I just thought, we don't know their circumstances. They're mm. probably people living week to week, paycheck mm. by paycheck. And the reason why I don't have insurance is because they just can't bloody afford it. And I yeah. get um, really uh, angry when people make, uh, you know, it's not fair. I pay insurance and stamp due and all that sort of stuff. Well, good on you, mate. So do I. But, mm. um, you know, so thank God we live in a country where, you know, we have governments, state or federal, that look after the most weak and vulnerable people or, or people at their most vulnerable times. And, mm, mm, mm. Very good points. Yeah, that's it's such a tough thing, isn't it? Like, I can't imagine being one of those homeowners, say, in a bushfire area or a flood area, and then they decide to decide, or well, they change change insurance from a thousand dollars a year to twenty thousand dollars a year. I mean, some people just can't simply afford that. Your experience, though, being in that role as a counsellor, you you've got to spend a lot of your time talking to people and hearing their story. Is that a good aspect of it? I mean, I'd imagine it spans the full spectrum of really great to really harrowing. 
city of uh, Springvale at the time, which is no longer in existence, you know, that was very much, you know, a migrant and working class, probably medium to low socioeconomic type area. And the ward I was in, you know, uh, one of the suburbs there was Noble Park. And, you know, it was a, uh, a real working sort of class type suburb. And, you know, there was a benevolent society that, um, that I uh, became involved with and, you know, just learning, you know, this is back in the 90s, you know, where people, you know, living, you know, uh, and you know, this is when I was young too, and I was living week to week, paycheck to paycheck when I was young, you know, with a young family, but it gives you good grounding to understand what other people are going through. And um, just because somebody, uh, you know, has a, a lower income type uh, professional job, you know, it doesn't mean they're bad people, you know, they mm. You know, this is where I think people, you know, they're not pulling their weight. Well, you know, they are great contributors. You know, they are doing, you know, making a difference in the community. That just happens to be not being a a well-paid professional. It doesn't mm. reflect on them as people. And that's exactly. um, yeah, that's where I've grown up. You know, that was that was my hood. You know, where I've grown yeah. up. In. You know, my my father was uh, in the fire brigade, and my mother, well, ultimately would work in uh, politics. But you know, we were a fortunate family. You know, where we lived. You know, we were, you know, relatively. Uh, I suppose uh, middle income. Mm. Yeah, it really makes you be thankful, really, for your own situation. I think a lot of the times when you look at other people and you know their their lot in life, it can be super challenging. Yeah. Okay, so um, you finished up in politics, and then your career moved into the world of business development. <laughs> can you tell us about that decision? How you got started in that area, and and ultimately you've succeeded and I'd like to hear what makes you great in it. It's probably a really interesting story how I, like how I got into the water industry is by mistake and how I got into sales was by mistake. Sorry, good luck, not mistake, it's a, that's not the right term. So uh, I was a plumber, heating and ventilation plumber, mechanical services plumber, and I was working on the Southern Stand at the MCG, which was getting prepared for the World Cup, the Cricket World Cup in, um, must have been 93. 92, sorry, 92. <laughs> and um, I got married young, and when I came back from my wedding, um, I was retrenched. But you know, there was like three thousand plumbers unemployed in Melbourne. That was the last recession, which um, probably most listeners yeah. on here would never have experienced a what a recession's like. So uh, I come back from uh, my wedding or honeymoon, and um, the company did the right thing. They waited till I got back before you know, retrenching me before then. So. Uh, I was um, an unemployed, just come out of my apprenticeship and an unemployed plumber uh, in the recession and um, it was not a good time, Victoria, in the construction industry. I suppose me being the person I am, I started looking for work and um, there was a small heating and ventilation guy in the suburb where I lived and just went knocked on the door and said, this is this is me, this is what I do. And and uh, he said, okay, well, you can start helping, um, you know, we can use an installer for ducted heating, which is unheard of up here in Queensland, but ducted, ducted <laughs> heating and, and air conditioning. And uh, and away I went and I did about, it's unbelievable, I only did about three or four jobs for this bloke. He said, Mark, listen, I'm, and, uh, I'm really um, overburdened with uh, Lee's. He did a lot of advertising in local newspaper, which sadly we don't have anymore. Local news, he advertised in local newspaper and he said, oh, can you help me? Um, can you do, would you mind doing a bit of going out and seeing and selling? And I said, oh, yeah, why not? <laughs> so um, I you know, went out and uh, took you know, the leads out and rang up people, made appointments, and uh, I started um, selling, you know, heating and ventilation air conditioning. I thought, well, this is not bad, this stuff. I really enjoy this. <laughs> and I did really well for him and um, didn't particularly, you know, technically I knew what I was talking about, but probably probably totally unpolished as a salesperson, but I enjoyed it. I had some good results and I ended up getting a, a lead for um, a fellow and his wife and went out to see him and he would have been in his 50s at the time and I would have been 22, 23 and he took a shine to me and we, we got talking about, you know, what you're doing in your life and all the rest of it and said, I've just started in sales and he was a sales executive for building company Stagbar, which is pretty well known across the country and and one thing to, led to another and he got me uh, an interview with Stagbar I think about six weeks later I was a sales executive for Stagbar and as a builder's rep 
and I absolutely loved it. I worked there for about 13 years, I think, and I had a lot of success and just loved the job and I was really good at it and was very fortunate too. It came a lot of good you know, financial rewards and bonuses, and I did really, really well, enjoyed it. And, you know, a lot of those builders, you know, I was worked in the inner suburbs of like boutique home builders, luxury home builders, and I got to know them, became a lot of, you know, really friends with them. And uh, actually some of them, a couple of them I'm still friends with today, even from up here in Brisbane, you know, I still stayed in contact with them and, yeah, loved it, absolutely loved it. But it was uh, time to leave Victoria and uh, the weather and, um, and Queensland was calling. Mark, what made you so successful in this? I'm keen to hear in your words. Persistent is one, absolutely okay. persistent. And that's a good trait for a salesperson is persistence and being honest and genuine, sincere. Anthony, you know, we've, we're talking now after nearly 20 years and, you know, we've got a relationship and I think you know, there's a fair bit of trust in there. And Definitely. that's, you know, really important is to build trust with people. And uh, that's why I really enjoyed the work with Stegbar because I was dealing with the repeat demanding boutique builders and better than the, the heating and ventilation and one-off sales. I was good at it, but what I'm best of is, you know, building a relationship, you know, long-term relationships with with people, yeah. and that's what I enjoy. It's so often about the relationship, isn't it, more than anything else? You know, you can sell a product, but, you know, sometimes it's the, the trust in that relationship to know that, yeah, you can keep going if things wax and wane i used to get feedback from oh mark we just love dealing with you and i said well why <laughs> i said well you, you answer your phone and you turn up on time mm. i thought geez that's uh doesn't take much to do that it's just common courtesy <laughs> it doesn't yeah. cost a thing and and but it was true like i i'm diligent i'm always 99.9 percent of the time on on time you know, I return phone calls and messages. And mm-hmm. and when I was starting out too, it was just the start of mobile phones as well. So, uh, you know, the way we did, there was no text messaging and stuff like that. You know, people wanted to get hold of you and and mobiles just came out too. And geez, my, my, I'm not telling you guys, my mobile bill in the early 90s was up and over $1,000 a month. Wow. <laughs> Business paying for that, I hope. <laughs> My fuel bill was high, my mobile bill was high, but my sales also reflected it as well. So uh, I just, I look back now, they were up near 900, close to $1,000 a month. It's amazing. Isn't it crazy to think, what's the cost of those calls actually? I, I guess it, it it's a volume thing really. And if well, they're all timed. They're all timed. Yeah. They're all timed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You remember those overseas calls in the 80s and 90s, how carefully you watched the minutes. I never had enough money for them, Simon. Yeah, even <laughs> even an STD phone call. Gosh, that was always a bit of a nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, gosh. Yeah, that, that's bringing us back. Tell you what, definitely. So you talked about your move to Queensland. You've been a stalwart in the water industry for almost 20 years now. Um, you mentioned you entered it by accident. So can you tell us about that moment and what exactly happened? So uh, uh, once again, one of my uh, builder mates, um, he had a, a mate of his who became a, a friend of mine as well, and he worked for a company at the time called uh, ITT Flight, and yep. uh, Anthony knows where this is going. And um, so I've relocated up and had a, a meeting with the regional manager. Uh, obviously, he, what attracted him was um, both was the practical background I had in plumbing, um, not having been, you know, been worked in mechanical equipment before, but having the practical, but also the sales experience. And he took a punt on me, and I think it'd be a long time to get going uh, with flight technically. And that's where I actually met uh, met Anthony for the first year. I think you were with PBs going mm, back all right. those years ago. Yeah. And um, never looked back. You know, I had I had a great career with, uh, well, what was ITT Flight, then ITT Water and Wastewater, then became Xylem, and uh, I had an amazing career with them. But at the time, I didn't know I was entering into the water sector. <laughs> and selling pumps, I mean, yeah, there, there's a strong element of knowing your technical, um, I don't know, call it understanding of, of how pumps operate. And I'm sure you're dealing with people like Anthony ask, trying to ask you tricky questions. How did you balance that need to inform yourself enough technically or or is it just really around the team that you build to support you 
Well, I, you know, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but uh, that company back then, uh, the technical support, the engineering support was second to none, and the training that they did, you know, they invested a lot of time and effort into me, and, you know, it, it paid off. You know, it probably took, you know, probably good 12, 18 months, two years for me to technically, um, you know, get to good basic understanding. So, Mark, was it just you were looking for a new challenge? You know, you'd done everything you needed to do with Stegbar. You were just looking for that new mountain to climb. Was that was that it? Yes, I actually had a transfer in the end from Stegbar. Um, but I just thought, oh, you know, a new city, new state. And I probably, and that was a very demanding job, the Stegbar job. You know, you started very early, although you did finish early. But it was very difficult to take time off because builders, you had to go to site day in, day out. And I remember a couple of times I was crook, like really sick. I had to get my wife to drive me around. So I remember one time I had an ear infection and I, I just couldn't balance. But I had to go to see these builders because they just these are very demanding clients and you couldn't let them down. So yeah. it was a job where, one, it was very hard to take time off, even taking annual leave. It was very, very difficult to take annual leave because these people really I was the only line of contact was my mobile number you know for these builders so uh, and that wasn't it was just I think Anthony you're right it was just a time you know it's um it's just time to try something different you know I had all that energy and and you know, plenty of good sales experience behind me and and it paid off you know I I ended up working for an amazing company I had an amazing boss and worked in and started in the water sector and you know flights just just not pumps you know there's there's all the mechanical equipment aeration uv and ozone and daf and uh, under drains you name it so you know i started becoming a water and wastewater professional yeah that feels like yesterday when i met you the first time in spring hill there when you were working for ITT, you know, that was in 2005 so what's that it's 19 18 and a half something like that years ago just yeah. now so Look, we've only got a short show. Can you briefly tell us about your water journey? Because you, you didn't stay for flight for the last 20 years. You've moved around a bit. Can you just tell our listeners about what you've done? And you've done a lot. Um, if you can touch on some of your stops along the way to where you are now. Probably done a bit too much, but... Uh, <laughs> I, short um, show, Mark. Remember, it's a short show here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love working at... Um, I, I refer to it as flight, but it's, you yep. know, this island. I loved working there. I had a lot of success, a lot of good colleagues, and I'm still in contact with you know Brownie and and some others. Uh, Anthony, I'm still in contact with these people, and we always catch up and have a laugh because we worked really hard. We had great results. We also played pretty hard too, and we had a lot of good fun um, stuff. You just can't do anymore, as, <laughs> as in because um, good old fashioned client entertaining. You know, you just can't do it anymore, uh, mm. which is probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, from there, I um, I started with Johnson Screens, then become Bill Finger Water Technologies, then became Acceptance Group. So it's just all this like like you know just acquisition, 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 and um, yeah. And that was uh, obviously you guys be familiar with them. It was um, a lot of um, inlet works and head works, and um, uh, it's a lot of sludge treatment and so on. So I enjoyed that good bunch of guys. A lot of them are still there. It's an amazing company with so many long term employees. I think I had three or four years there and I met some amazing engineers like at Zyland, you know, I worked with some of the best engineers and very, very well supported But the other extra added bonus that company. I started to, you know, not just uh, travel around the country, but I started doing um, a lot of international travel and meeting a lot of water and wastewater professionals from across the world from being colleagues or at other uh, trade shows etc you know india you know, what an amazing place to go with there a couple of times and you know it's traveled extensively throughout southeast asia and india and uh, in europe so really really enjoyed that yeah that opportunity for travel is pretty wonderful it's a good sector yeah yeah but uh you know with that too simon you know in india it was probably my first real exposure to the challenges in wash the first trip i had to india I was just outside Delhi and got there late at night and I looked at my hotel room, sorry, waiting for a lift, looking at the window, and there was a bloke uh, performing open defecation in a paddock uh, next door. So uh, it um, was um, quite a confronting, and it wasn't close enough, but it was in a far enough distance that I knew what was going on. And uh, mm. and that sort of um, 
uh, open my eyes to other parts of um, the world that we live in and, and how the water sector plays a part in this. And past Johnson Screens, Mark, if I may, you had a few more stops. I um, did a, uh, a stint at Veolia as well. Uh, it probably wasn't a good time at Veolia. It's when there was Veolia Water Australia and Veolia Water Technology and there was some real, I think, uh, I think from going back now, egos and politics at the very highest of levels in that company. And I think it was a time of flux for Veolia at that time. And um, you know, I think they say when elephants fight, the ants get crushed. And and you know, once again, you know, I met some amazing people there, some great engineers, probably the Veolia. Um, at that time, it was probably a bad time for Veolia and it wasn't a good time for me to be there and uh so uh um, i didn't stay very long i think it was just over 12 months and um i then ended up working with hugh chapman who was uh, working at the time was pure technologies and that was a canadian company specializing in um, condition assessment of pressure pipes and, um, and also leak detection and i found it thoroughly interesting um, the technology used in that and um, you know once again condition assessment and asset management was once again a new portion of uh, exposure to me to the water sector and uh, I just love the technology I, like I just thought I, I've just got to sell this this is just amazing I just cannot wait to get a hold of this but it was um, learning about the Australian water sector that it's um, pretty risk adverse you know there's three things I've noted with the Australian water sector about innovation and technology you know where you know, Mark, we love innovation technology, but we don't want to be the first. Mm. Um, <laughs> we love uh, innovation technology, but we don't want to pay for it. And then a combination <laughs> of both. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. You really encourage, you know, the people responsible to take the leap. It's, it's, it's obviously a lot of instances, uh, the public money, you know, if we're talking about councils and water utilities and, yeah, having that assurance that, you know the solution that that you're talking about is right and you're not being sold a snake oil or what have you that yeah we are very risk averse and we like to see tried and and proven technologies it's mm. it is a challenge for our sector very much yeah it is and um i've probably go on this and talk about some other startups and tech providers that i've worked for but uh, you know i've sort of found that the industry you know never ever struggled to get an appointment with someone you know having a chat about the, the technology, um, it's uh, its achievements, what it's done, but unless you had results, you know, locally here in Australia, or um, they just couldn't see the investment, you know, they, the return on investment didn't add up, and mm. it was always that um, they're always waiting for something new and better. You know, if I if I commit to this, then I could miss out on the next wave of technology and which still goes in with us all the iot devices now it's just frustrating that you know someone has to make that commitment to uh, a technology or a platform or or SaaS, whatever it is uh, that they're potentially locked in and that's where people don't take the leap or or the um the strategy of doing nothing seems to be working at the moment so we'll continue to do nothing mm. mark tell us about why you love the water industry so much Oh, I imagine if it's if it's different from you guys, then I'd be very surprised. I um, it's um, you know a lot of people say that the water sector in this country is quite incestuous, and I and I and I and I agree with that. I think um, you know here I am, you know I've had multiple different um, employers and um, and working for different providers, but I've stayed in the one sector, and I, and I like um, you know I spoke about how the risk adverse industries, but it's also very um, collegial um there's a lot of networking you know we're no matter how you think we are a small country and we're very isolated so we have to make things do and, and australians you know I, I think we're top two or three or four in the world of being custodians of water supply you know we're blessed you know we, we have world-class drinking water um, sanitation and hygiene in this country and i uh, i love work and i always say it has an environmental type um you know health professionals you know that's another thing i've heard you know a lot of the professional you know we're, we're not uh, working in the water sector actually health professionals and i i like that aspect i like the environmental side of things in water particularly in wastewater of how good we are and highly regarded australian water practitioners are 
you know, we all, you, know you, you always see on the AWA, there have been visits from all sorts of countries around the world from the twinning programs coming to see as custodians and managers and environmental experts about how we're managing our waterways, our water and wastewater systems. Um, but I, I think, Anthony, though, it's really just more than that. There's really good people, really yeah. interesting people. People always want to do the right thing from an environmental sense. People very proud of, of what they do, of, of delivering first class water and sanitation services. So I, I like the part that we're performing a, uh, you know, a critical service, you know, probably is the most critical service exactly. on mankind. I mean, I always say to people, you know, when they sent the probe to Mars, what were they looking for? You, mm-hmm. know, you know, it wasn't minerals. It was just one thing. It was it was water and it, uh, the elixir of life. Well, exactly. that's it. It can, can sustain all life and without it, there is none. So it's, yeah, very much a an important commodity and an asset you know in that sense and yeah really great words just about that the industry in general it, it really is uh, at least yeah I, I share that experience in terms of it being a, such a passionate one and people who i think for the most part are out to do good and better our lives as not just our industry but the lives of everyone in general you know i think it it is a very altruistic industry in, in trying to provide better services better conditions for people, better environmental results. You know, we we keep trying to do better. Well said too, Simon. Thank you. Yeah. Um, tell us, your current role is as a corporate partnerships manager with WaterAid. So you've mentioned that WASH acronym, Water and Sanitation Hygiene. You've been in this role since July 22. Can you tell us about your responsibilities in this role and in WaterAid? Sure, I, I might just go a little bit earlier than that, uh, Simon, actually how I got involved with WaterAid. Yes, um, definitely. Um, WaterAid, uh, like the AWA, run volunteer committees um, in uh, each capital in the country, and uh, I think I attended my first WaterAid ball probably in Melbourne over 10 years ago when I was at Veolia, and I got the bug, you know, um, you know, people <laughs> doing good things for our nearest and closest neighbours in water sanitation hygiene so uh, i sort of put my hand up and um i was actually uh based in sydney at the time and uh, actually yeah i was um i was a awa president at the time in new south wales and uh, reached out to the new south wales crew and had a good chat about coming on board and it's actually when i moved back to from sydney to brisbane that um, i put my hand up and uh dave taylor was very instrumental in me getting involved and also Mike Williamson they were both very instrumental in me getting involved in water aid and a voluntary committee so uh, I launched in as I do head first so from a from a committee perspective we organize the three local events in Queensland which is the uh, the premium black tire balls the golf days and the trivia nights and then they have a couple of national events and programs and uh, Particularly, a lot of effort goes in around the black tie balls, and, and if you haven't beaten them, they are an amazing evening. You know, high entertainment, great networking, noisy, and no one leaves there a big smile on their face at uh, <laughs> the water aid balls. And you know, it's a great opportunity for water aid to raise significant funds for our nearest and closest uh, neighbours in Wash. So. I used to always complain to Ward Raid after the black tie balls, you know, why don't we done this? What do you think about doing this <laughs> this way? And, you know, why can't we do this and have this and yada, yada, yada. So uh, I think one thing led to another uh, and uh, they got sick of my complaining and moaning. And um, and they said, listen, you know, we'd uh, like you to come on board in corporate partnerships and help us out with a lot of those ideas. And they had a very limited reach too. They were really struggling in New South Wales and Queensland in reach. So, um, you know, I had a chat with my wife and I thought, man, let's, so we did a 12 month contract with WaterAid. So then you get this out of your system and go and do what you can do for WaterAid. And so I had a 12 month contract with them. And in corporate partnerships, it really is engaging um, with all the water utilities, you know, all the, the WSPs, GHDs, Stantex, the, the Downers, the Fulton Hogan's, the Veolias and, and so on of the world and, and engaging with them and making sure that we uh, offer them the most value in our partnerships, in our sponsorships, in our memberships, making sure it's an all one-way street and that we're adding back to these organisations. I mean, some all the Mark just let us alone, just send us an invoice every year and we're happy with that. 
but you know, and um, so be it. But um, you know, we just want to do the right thing. But you know, obviously, you can see from my background, you know, I want to make sure that we're giving the most value and that uh, we can. It gives us a good reason to. You know, I always have an old sales manager years ago say, "Mark, you've got five hundred customers, and isn't that good?" He goes, "No, you need 50. I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "We got five hundred customers spread out all over the place. You're doing bits of business here and there." But if you had 50 customers, you can concentrate, add better value, and we could actually sell more of our service. And I thought, yep, that makes good sense. So we're sort of taking that um, attitude with Waterway. And you think about, you know, some of the big organisations in this country, you know, the, the Downers and the John Hollands and the GHDs and the Jacobs, you know, their water only makes up, you know, 10 or 15% of their organisations. You know, here we are chasing all these new ones, you know, it's a, Great way for water aid then to um, really help. I use the word infiltrate, infiltrate the non-water parts of that business to add value and and be the go-to uh, NGO for those big organs. I mean, they already know us, already doing business with us. It just we need to expose ourselves and um, other parts of value centers of those organisations. So that's pretty much my job. Is the same as what I've always done, Anthony. Annoying people, persistent trying to add some value and uh, with water aid this certainly is very very humbling in what i'm doing it sounds like a wonderful fit for you mark and i can see in in your response how passionate and how excited and that big smile is, is emanating from him as he's talking about water aid so i haven't been to a black tie event mark please get me there this year <laughs> so the powers of wsp they need to uh, open the purse strings up a little bit more in brisbane <laughs> okay <laughs> Stop it now. Simon, <laughs> do you have anything for Mark? Yeah, building that relationship. So you've talked about the the water sector partners. Have you tried to make any forays into the kind of non-water sector? So, you know, like banking or bigger business or dif- different business and, and tried that angle for water aid? Water aid is not me personally. I, mean, I really am the water sector lead for water aid. And can you believe I'm the only person at water aid actually from the water sector? Most people at WaterAid are actually from other like-minded type NGOs or charities or philanthropic organisations. They're not don't have a technical background. What I have, and to be fair too, you know, I've got 20 years experience in the water sector, and I've been able to use that to my exact advantage. I, guys, I can't tell you the success that I've had doing what I'm doing the last 18 months. So sorry, after six months, water I said, oh, what are you going to do? After the your twelve months is up, so well, I haven't given it much thought. But yeah, I need to find something. I said, "Oh, we're really happy with what you're doing here. We uh, we don't because culturally they were very nervous about how I was going to fit in. You know, Water Aid is a um, it's an NGO, and uh, you know they run at different speeds. And you know I can't run you know in fifth gear at Water Aid. It's just not going to work. So uh, obviously having a few years and I've had to learn to adapt to the way uh, water rate does things but uh, having said that two guys have had an enormous amount of success um, it was a record year for water rate i'm not going to say i did it all on my own um, there's some great people behind me but it was very rewarding knowing and and the other thing i love about water rate is that just under 80 cents every dollar we raise ends up in our program so it has real bang for buck in wash and i was also very lucky last year to do a country tour with the team or less day and I don't know if you want me to elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, look, we've certainly had a guest on previously that has, has spent some time. Uh, was it Timor Leste that Ian Cameron oh, went I to? It, I think it was PNG. PNG, it? sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, but his, his He's done that with Rotary, hasn't he? Mm, yes, that's correct. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We tried to do some work with uh, Ian when I was a volunteer for water. We tried to do a little bit of work together, but just got too hard. Yeah, but the the experience, or just just that on the ground experience, just sounds so rewarding to to see what has actually taken place. So yeah, if you can tell us a little bit about your experience in Timor Leste, that'd be great. Well, it's a you know I've been very fortunate in my life to travel extensively around Southeast Asia. It's just over an hour's flight from Darwin. It's the same as bloody Melbourne to Sydney or Sydney to to Brisbane. Yeah, that's that close. But when you land, you appreciate how hilly it is. You know, it really is only flat for really guys, you know, a kilometre you know, along the coastline, and then it just goes straight up. But w- one thing, you know, as soon as you get off the plane, you know, you're at the airport, and you, it, it's unlike any other country that I've been in. in, in it's uh, impoverished. 
and it is the most impoverished country in Southeast Asia. It's one of the most impoverished countries in the world. And uh, you know, you travel around Southeast Asia, and, you know, you'll you'll see you know a lot of poverty. You'll see a lot of pollution. You know, the uh, big bundling of the cables and wires going mm-hmm. everywhere, and the horns yeah. beep 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 beep, mm. and the sounds. <laughs> But what you do see in those countries, you now you'll see a $300,000 Maybach or a half a million dollar Mercedes or a yep. half a million dollar Ferrari mm-hmm. in those countries. But in Timor, you don't see that. You know, it's just it's just really poverty stricken country. And, you know, the the, um, the cars, there's no flash cars. You know, we, we were taken around in uh, full drive use like Hiluxes and Tritons and stuff. One youth had Mount Isa and Mitsubishi on the back, and then one of the youths had like Essendon and Mitsubishi in Melbourne. So, you know, they have a lot of secondhand Australian vehicles. The locals have, you know, the, the phones that we dispose of, you know, end up in places like Timor getting a, a $1 SIM card a month. You know, you look, walk past, go past a market in the car, and there's secondhand clothes hanging up. Um, there is no wastewater system, zilch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. all open sewers, which flows out into the beautiful bay and ocean there. Yeah, remember, this is uh, an hour north of Darwin, so it's just got pristine beaches or what should be pristine beaches, you know, heavily polluted sand with, you know, bottle caps and straws. And uh, how's this for an, an, uh, a non-revenue water figure? So I'm, I'm, Australia probably, I think, runs at about 9% non-revenue water. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Dili, the capital, 91%. Wow. <laughs> so it's... Um, so we, I was going to guess 50. <laughs> oh, yeah. Malaysia, wow. I've seen Malaysia, you know, when we work for pure technology, you know, figures in KL and we're in Malaysia, you know, 50, 60%, 91%. And <laughs> um, so that's mostly theft. Um, yeah. And obviously... Leak. No, it's mostly theft, and obviously with theft, there's no backflow devices. So pretty much, yeah, we went to a wastewater, sorry, a water treatment plant. It's as good as you'll get here. Um, you know, filtration and um, and chlorination, disinfect, it's all as good as you'll get here. But as soon as it leaves the treatment plant, it's stolen, and there's no backflow prevention, so it um, you can't drink it. And um, yeah. it's it's, uh, but we don't work, we don't work in Dili. Dili's the capital. Dili's about the size of Cairns. We work in uh, regional areas and municipal areas, and I'll just give you one example of a village. Three things I'll never forget. This one thing, we went to a village. We left the the Bitumen Road. We went up in the Utes, up in the Highlands, and I thought this it was the most full-on full drive I've ever done in my life. I got I got a Prado. I would have turned back halfway. <laughs> and uh, so we get to this village, and the villagers just treat us like rock stars, which we're all really embarrassed. But they just put on a big song, and literally a song and dance, and welcomed us. And we got to see some of the work that we've done on water supply. I could not believe what the water So the water supply was for over a kilometre, um, this village was tapping into a, um, a natural spring. It was unreliable. It didn't. Uh, it wasn't a good source for all year round, but it was their only source. So their conduit for two kilometres was um, 70, 80 mil bamboo sliced in half mm. as the conduit, and they just had sticks in the ground with a natural Y piece in them that were probably two or three hundred high, that just supported and gravity fed it all the way down. And these sticks of bamboo were four, five, six, seven, eight metres long, just overlapped each other, just overlap, overlap for over two kilometres and their water security of their water storage at the end, the water just trickled, just trickled at the end. This water source or water, the storage of water was a two litre orange juice container hanging at the end. (laughs) And it was muddy and it was muddy. So that was still run. They still kept that in place. But what WaterAid did, um, it's, I've got 100 people in this village, you know, very remote what we did was installed two concrete um, square tanks at different levels but we piped you know 32 40 mil poly but mm-hmm. we piped it so we gave them a source of storage and then we put in two concrete pads with tap on there so it's nice and dry and safe where they went and collected water so that gave them some water security made it safe and secure not muddy but it also prevented the women and girls having to walk for water when that well was unreliable or, or wasn't uh, was just completely dried up and uh, and when women and girls walk for water that opens a whole tale of woe so it blew i, I was so naive before i started with water aid i just thought water aid built very small scale low energy 
water and wastewater treatment plants. It, it, it couldn't be further from the truth what water rate. Water rate dealing with people and virtually nothing. Must be so rewarding to help communities like that. And yeah, you've just opened my eyes how lucky we are in Australia to go to the tap and just turn yeah. on the tap and flush the toilet. And thanks for bringing that to my attention and Simon and our listeners' attentions. And, and it just emphasises how important or emphasises the great work that Water Aid's doing. I'm going to keep going with that question, Simon. This one's going to hopefully not embarrass you, Mark, because I know it's going to embarrass you a little. You don't like the light on you, but I'm going to ask you, tell us about some of your career highlights that you are most proud of. And you can't uh, say, you can't say, oh, I haven't done anything that special because I'm not going to take that as an answer. <laughs> All right. I think back at uh, my Zylem days, I was really proud of uh, what myself and uh, Matt Wessel, who's still there, um, he's a director there now. What we did in uh, MNC or monitoring control, like we would, we would. Uh, everyone knew Zion uh, or flight for pumps and mixes and, and so on. But what we did in, in the northern hemisphere, flight had a good MNC or monitoring control range, and um, so pump controllers and level control and SCADA. So um, just from from nothing, we started selling PLCs and level control and SCADA. We were monitoring, you know, some of the um, the regional Queensland uh, small councils in their water and mostly water supply, water and wastewater, mostly water supply, pump stations and so on. And we took it from nothing. I think we would end up doing um, one year we did 750, 750 grand. It sounds small amount of money, but coming from starting from zero into SCADA, it was fantastic. But then I think DNP three came in and just killed the whole lot it was the um comly was i think the uh the communications they were using i think dmp3 came in and just sort of killed it or mod bus just just came and just killed it overnight but uh i love that it was uh, and once again you know coming from a a plumber in melbourne you know to working in mechanical equipment and then into monitoring control and plcs and switchboards and so on you know i, I just learned so much and and I started really getting involved in that MNC side of things and the electronics. So I enjoyed that. I'd have to say the other one was I worked for a, a German company for a couple of years, Primus Line, which was a, um, a pressure liner and pretty much took that from nothing into, and not just in Australia, um, throughout Southeast Asia. And I traveled extensively across the country in New Zealand, Southeast Asia. and. I had enormous um, amount of satisfaction results with that company. Um, they were amazing supporters, uh, the Germans and the engineers from Germany. They supported me. Uh, uh, they gave me 101% support, gave me a lot of confidence, and we had a lot of good results uh, with Primus Line. And now uh, it's just gone leaps and bounds now. There's just so yeah, many installations absolutely. now, and uh, not just pressure mains, also in sewer rising mains, which was sort of a bit of a grey area when I started, but the technology has proved itself now. And um, uh, I, I have a lot of satisfaction in knowing that I helped establish that uh, in Australia yeah. and this region. Yeah, I mean, when you look, consider our ageing networks, and I mean, Sydney and Melbourne are probably a little more advanced, but we're getting to it certainly in Queensland, you know, in that 70-year-plus asset age and the need to have to drive our assets harder, smarter, and, and not just simply going to a replacement solution. It's it's a, it's great to see those type of products really thrive and, and grow. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of really good products that have turned up in, in that space in the industry in the last 10 years so yeah interesting to hear mark's definitely had a lot of involvement in so many sectors it's just amazing i i won't ask you to pick a favorite i um i can see you like all of them i got one more question for mark simon last question and it's just about your involvement in all these professional organizations i listed a few at the start so many more that i could have listed you obviously are very passionate about giving your time back to the industry. Tell me why. Why do you do it? Uh, I do it, I think, because I've got the energy. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the the ADD side of things, always <laughs> wanting to, to get involved. I would like to think it's not about ego, but maybe it's probably a little bit of ego there as well. I'd like to think not, but I'd like to think that I just had the time, the passion, 
and the energy you know to give back and uh you know where i have i've been involved in a lot of uh, water sector water related industry associations but where i've spent where i invested most time and emotion and, and probably money as well would be with awa and loved it particularly when i was uh in lived in sydney i lived in sydney for six years and was president of the new south wales branch and just loved it you know we we had put on so many great events and activities there in in sydney and um i uh, made a lot of great friends and you know i was fairly newish to sydney and and you know my involvement with awa really escalated you know my networks and contacts and it was only uh only just before Christmas said, oh, Mark, you've got such an extensive network in, of contacts. And I said, well, mate, 20 years ago, I knew no one. Mm. You know, <laughs> like, like this guy was new. And I said, mate, like you, there was a time when I knew nobody, but I, I went out specifically, I invested a lot of time, effort and energy because I wanted to. And uh, as a result, I was able to give back to these industry associations and make friends and industry contacts. And, and it's, I think the old saying, it's not, um, it's not what you know, it's who you know in this exactly. industry. And, and it's paid absolute dividends to me with the networks and contacts that I've had. And, and if I don't know the right person, then I <laughs> definitely know someone that does know the right person. <laughs> Two degrees of separation in order. Yeah. <laughs> Simon, that's all I have for Mark. I'll let you keep going. The only other question I have is prob probably more getting into our easier line of questioning, but um, what do you like to do outside of work? Post-COVID, um, I was a cycling nutcase. Like I was with road cycling. <laughs> I was just obsessed. And uh, uh, when I wasn't working, I was on a bike and uh, like I was doing up to 16,000 kilometres a year. And I've ridden from Brisbane to Townsville twice for a charity. I've ridden from Melbourne to Brisbane. I've done a lap of oh, Tasmania. You, you rode from Brisbane to Townsville. I've only driven twice. there once. Twice. I've only driven there once, and that was once too many. Well, mate, <laughs> I, I rode from Melbourne to Brisbane uh, the hard way across the Great Dividing Range. So it wasn't up the Ooh. new highway. It was uh, the hard way. And, you know, through work, you know, I've cycled and take my bike to Singapore and Germany, um, Czechoslovakia. I've, I've done all the the climbs of the Tour de France, Spain, Mallorca, Switzerland. I've just absolutely obsessed and uh, <sighs> nutcase and, and that was my life. And then COVID came, I injured my knee and got a bit crook and then COVID kicked in and uh, that switch in my head switched off and I haven't been able to switch it back on, <laughs> which I've put some COVID, you know, if one knows me, I've got COVID kilos at the moment too. So I need to get my mojo back and... Um, get back into my cycle that was the biggest part of my life oh, i mean and it's it's such a you know it, i've done a little bit certainly not that amount of cycling but geez it's a great recreation i don't know like maybe like running or swimming you know you get off the bike you can't help but feel good it's just like a drug it's you, you can understand why they do it it's it's such a great thing exercise and you know, you do get to cover more ground, so you get to see more. That's probably one benefit of the bike over running or other things. Yeah, wonderful. Get back into that rhythm, Mark. I've got a beautiful Pinarello sitting in my garage waiting for me to jump back on. I don't oh, know lovely. what that is. I don't know what that is, but it's it sounds Italian. Italian. It sounds yeah. Italian. It must be good. <laughs> and they're not cheap. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's the bulk of our main questions, Mark. So we're ready to enter into the Fabulous Five, if you're ready. Right I'm going to kick it off, Simon. Mark, good luck. First question is, what has been the greatest piece of advice received and who told you? Oh, it's probably two. Anything. One I gave away when I was very young and spoke to what I thought were older mechanics, so probably in their 30s, and sort of told me what this job's like and how it hasn't ended up the way they thought. And, uh, and to take nothing away from the people that do that profession today, but... Um, I think that was really good advice that, that I took to uh, find something that was probably more suited to me and my the way I am wired. I think the other one too was uh, the manager when I was at Xylem and uh, I remember him having a conversation, something along the lines, Mark, you know, you've, you've had such a huge impact on this organisation of how we go about sales because we could only have one of you. Um, because if we had more, you'd break the company. And um, and <laughs> it was a, 
there's a good side to that, but there's a side that um, really made me sit up. And uh, he said, there's a lot of people show a lot of respect and admiration for what you've done because the other half of the company are, are petrified and scared of you. And, um, you know, because I was so determined, you know, to get those results and and satisfy customers, you know, I, I put a lot of pressure on the ops people on the engineering side. And it was, uh, you know, looking back now, you know, I didn't have the empathy for those people that I should. I was just so results orientated that the only thing that mattered was the customer. And mm. um, that was a big wake up call for me to uh, learn to look in the rear vision mirror because a lot of dead bodies that I'd left behind. And um, and that's uh, when I talk about empathy is uh, when I really did start developing and, you know, doing profiling. You know, I'm a great on personal development, but a lot of self um, profiling of yourself. And uh, a lot mm. of it was quite confronting when I learned about myself and how I'm perceived by other people. And uh, it was a real stand-up moment for me to um, probably think about the way I'm doing things and, and change. So I'm um, far, far better person than what I used to be. Yeah, there's nothing more more sobering than finding out what uh, other people think about you, hey? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when it's not too flattering, I suppose it's not a um, popularity contest, but it's important to be nice. What's the old saying? It's mm. it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. Yeah, very that's nice. very true. <laughs> very true. Okay, question two. Who would you like to share a dinner with and why? Jeez, I reckon uh, Ernie Sanders. Oh, Bernie Sanders? Yep. Is he the politician? The politician. I'm giving, I'm, I'm giving away a lot about myself now, aren't I? No, that's all right. You've got to tell yeah, us the why, we're, though. We're learning more. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the American politician or Democrat he's politician? A, he's, the, he's the senator from Vermont, but uh, he's been the uh, Democrat presidential nominee for a couple of times now and has failed. But, uh, you know, he's come very close. He actually gave Hillary Clinton um, a very, very mm. good run for her money. But this guy is extremely well balanced. You know, he's mm, he really most. does. You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of problems that we have in this country, New Zealand, the UK, the US, Canada, they're all very similar problems. You know, with uh, corporate uh, companies and obsessive profits and inflation and uh, people going backwards. He he articulates that better than any person I've heard, and I find him a very interesting person about equality and. Um, inclusion. He's a person that takes on, you know, the big end of town, and uh, you know, he's he's not out to destroy capitalism. You know, we need entrepreneurs in in our lives. You know, we need to have those people. But you know, there's uh, a great imbalance at the world at the moment, and uh, he's on top of it, and he articulates that. So I, I think, um, and environmental, you're on top of a lot of environmental events as well, and uh, I think that'd be my uh, my go-to person, old Bernie. Nice work. Excellent choice. Okay, my turn. Number three, what is your greatest non-work related achievement? Oh, I think it'd be uh, be my my kids. Um, uh, I've got a, a son and a daughter. Actual fact, my son's in the water sector. Really? So he's, um, my son, he's now a project engineer for Penso. Oh, very good. Okay. So that's something that, um, so if you look at his, uh, uh, his LinkedIn profile photo, there's me and him at Oswater. So uh, he's done really well at Pensar and they're a great organisation. He's uh, he's very, very, he's found a good organisation where they love him and he loves them. And he's he started off estimating with them. He's just transitioned into project engineering, now hitting the sites up at either Bundy or Mackay or whatever. So, uh, you know, so that's, uh, you know, I'm proud of my kids and my son being in the water sector and everywhere he goes, oh, do you know Mark Trembath? You know, all this <laughs> <laughs> Poor child. No, I'm sure that's a, I'm sure that'll open a few more doors. I thought you would have said you're cycling or cycling. Well, that's that's coming Mount up Everest this or something. Is, um, I don't know. The cycling, like I um, I do miss it. I still dream about it, and I'd have to say I was pretty good at it. But it's like everything with me; it's either on or off. <laughs> I get it. Okay, question four: What is your favourite place to travel to, and why? Oh, it's your. Uh, it's where uh, it's Italy. Italy. Mm. Oh, it's um good taste too. I've been very once again been very fortunate to travel up through Europe and um the first uh, cycling trip. I've been there for work, but also the first cycling trip was um 
around Lake Como and up around the Swiss Italian border at the Paso del Stelvio, which is one of the most famous passes that's been in Bond movies. It's, you know, one of those zigzag, 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 zigzag. It's near 3,000 metres high, but we had a beautiful holiday with our cycle, my cycling group here in Sandgate, where I live. Um, about 30 of us went over and boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands and wives, and we just had the trip. The weather was just amazing all around Lake Como and up on that Italian-Swiss border, and then my wife ended up doing a holiday down at uh, Santa Margarita, um, which is um, down near Genoa or Portofino, and I'd have to say that was the greatest holiday of my life. But where I like to hold over the most is Cotton Tree. We've got a six-week caravan site up there. <laughs> nice. He doesn't love the sunny coast. All right, last question. Mark, what is your go-to drink? A red, a white, or another? Good question. Uh, you owe me some bottles of wine too, I, by the way. I think I do owe you a lot. No, no, no. I think you do. You do owe me some wine. I know. Yes, I think I – yes, I do. Go. You do? Um it used to be big, bold, dark Shirazes. Just, just love them. Just absolutely, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, just, you just could not pull me away from it. But nowadays, it's, um, you won't believe this, I'm a, I'm a big savvy B man. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And um, I used to drink a fair bit of beer. Now, rare, rare do I drink beer. I would... Uh, I had beer at summertime over at Cotton Tree because you're in the caravan park. If you don't drink beer, then you're not going to be able to talk to anybody. But um, so I had beer. I'm happy to have a beer, but um, I rarely, rarely, rarely drink beer. And I just find it just bloats me. And um, so I just love a nice cold Sauvignon Blanc. Can't fault that. Well, thanks for coming on The Good Drop, Mark. It's been wonderful hearing your story. It's such an interesting story too. And, you know, your passion really shines through. It's, uh, I'm sure anyone who deals with you and knows you can probably attest to that. And just to tack on to you, Simon, Mark, thank you for your time today. You did a sterling job. I know you were a little bit nervous, you said to us, but you passed with flying colours. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks, guys. I, I was uh, nervous. It does take you out of your comfort zone, these types of things. But if anything comes out of this, I really do hope that people contact me wanting to get involved more about Water 8. If you don't know how to find me, you're not, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> okay. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for tuning into The Good Drop. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>